All right, last few assignments. Homework eight due today. So anytime by uh, six o'clock tomorrow. Hopefully then I'll take a look at those. If you've got them earlier or whenever you get them into me uh, or tomorrow morning, I'll take a look at them and give them back to you tomorrow to try to get rid of them. Uh, quiz eight is in class today, probably after the lecture but before the lab section. That way when you're done with the lab, if you want to work on anything else or if you're done, you're, you're done. And then the other things to go or there's three quizzes still left up if you have not taken yet. Quiz seven on chapters 15 and 16 will be available through the final exam day and the iTunes quizzes will be available. So any of those can be completed up till uh, 6 o'clock in the morning on Saturday. So if you want to wait till the very end or do one, uh, you can certainly uh, wait, wait till that point and then Saturday. That's say Saturday, I mean Friday. <laughs> 6 o'clock Friday, the day after the final. So everything will be done then and then I will hopefully have everything updated. I hope to have final exam grades in shortly after the final. So I hope to have everything in Thursday afternoon. Uh, the only thing you'd be waiting on is if you hadn't done one of the quizzes or if you're on a borderline grade at that point. <coughs> of course, if your grade is, you know, you know 89% or 87% say, then your, your quizzes probably aren't going to make any difference. So if you want to take them, you can, or if you don't. If you're right on the edge, then you probably want to take them just to make sure you get those extra points in there. And then if you're going to turn in exam for corrections, I do need those tomorrow. I don't want I didn't want to ask them before in case you wanted the quiz the exams to study for, but you can give them to me, you know, at the exam and then I'll take a look at those. Um, yeah. The final exam is going to be like um, the other four exams where you can use a, a study guide. Yes, you can print out the study guides. You can actually bring any of the study guides in you want. Okay. So you can bring the ones from the previous exams. You can't bring the previous exams and use them, but you can bring the previous study guides if you want to use those. Yes. What? If that's just the, just the. Yeah, it's just the question, like just the, just these. Just those questions, yeah. Yeah, yeah, just the study guide questions. Yeah. Yeah, that's fine. You can, you can use the study guide, the study guides and the study guide questions you are allowed to use, your, your answers you're allowed to use. No, that's as long as that's all that's there, that's fine. Yeah. Okay. Other questions? So final exam will be tomorrow. I gave you all the information on that. Uh, yesterday I'll finish making that up today and get it printed out and then we'll be ready to go and finish up tomorrow. All right. Well, picture of the day for today then is M31, uh, one of the Messier objects. Charles Messier cataloged these objects that looked a little fuzzy through tiny, through small telescopes uh, way back in the early 18, late late 17th, early 18th century and cataloged objects that look kind of fuzzy like comets. One of the ones he noticed was the Andromeda galaxy. This is the nearest large galaxy to our own. It's actually something you can see with your naked eye if you're at a reasonably dark site. It won't look anything like that. If you're looking at it with your naked eye, you'll see a, you'll see a star and if you kind of don't look quite at the star but it's here and you look a little bit off of it, you'll see this little fuzzy patch out of the corner of your eye and that's actually the Andromeda galaxy. So it's actually visible. One of those things, this Andromeda galaxy and the Orion Nebula are two of those objects that you can actually see with the naked eye actually visible that way. Uh, it's a spiral galaxy, so much like our own, you can see some of the spiral structure. We see it kind of in an in-between phase. Some of the spiral galaxies we looked right down, straight down on and could see all the great spiral arms. 
Other ones we were looking completely edge on and could just see the, the dust lanes. Here we're kind of angled a little bit where we can see the central portions. We can see the bulge in here. Uh, we can also see the spiral arms, the spiral structure. Very blue stars towards the outer portion. Much yellower towards the inside showing us where the stars are currently forming. Wherever we see the blue, that means stars must have formed in the last few million years because those stars don't live very long. So if the stars had not formed in the last few million years, those blue stars would be long since gone. So those are showing us all the regions in the outer part of this galaxy where stars are forming. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, probably is. Looks sort of like an elliptical. Probably a very, a very small elliptical, a dwarf elliptical. And that's a satellite galaxy of it. So it's, a, it's, not a, it's, not a, it's probably a, one of the satellite galaxies of the... That one and probably this one up above are probably satellite galaxies of the Milky Way. Okay, of the of Andromeda galaxy. Sort of like we have the Magellanic clouds that orbit around us. This uh, galaxy has, has smaller galaxies that orbit around it. Now most of the stars that you see though, those are all our galaxy. So when, even when you're looking in here, it looks like you're seeing all these stars in the Andromeda galaxy. Really, you're not going to be seeing stars there except with a very powerful, very large telescope. And this was taken with a smaller telescope. I mean, not a gigantic, you know, four or five, six meter across telescope. Um, so all the stars that you're seeing are actually stars in our galaxy that are just located in that same direction on the sky. So again, you lose that three-dimensional aspect to the sky when we look at images like this. You can't see that there's a big distance aspect and that all these stars are scattered on between us in the Andromeda galaxy, much closer to ours, then a big gap between us and then the Andromeda galaxy way out there in the distance. Right? So, questions? Questions, questions. One more. I'll show you whatever comes up tomorrow. So, all right. Let's see. Well, we were finishing up the last chapter then, or starting on the last chapter last time. So let's pick up there and finish that off. And then I have a lab to work on. And then, as I said, any extra time you have afterwards is. You know, if you need to catch up a lab or anything else, if you have labs that you haven't that you hadn't finished before, you can use that time to make them up if there's if whatever's left over. So we were looking at cosmic evolution last time and we talked about a lot of this. We talked about particulate, how the universe formed, the Big Bang. We talked about formation of galaxies, formation of stars, formation of planets. And now we want to look on and talk about chemical, biological, and cultural evolution. And that's really going to be the rest of this chapter is looking at those specific sections. So coming down to how can we communicate? Is there other life out there? And if so, how could we communicate with it? So that's sort of picking up where we finished up last time. What we know, or what we don't know, is very much about the early, early history of the Earth. That first billion years or so, Earth is about four and a half billion years old. We don't know much about that first billion years. The Earth was molten, meaning that any records or anything that formed, the Earth was just so active that everything was wiped out. So any fossil records or anything that might have formed at that time has, was long since destroyed, so we don't have any evidence of that. It's not until about three and a half or so billion years ago that we begin to have you know, any actual records left behind of you know, what was going on. So we don't really know what was going on 
that first billion years. But we have some ideas. We have some ideas that it was probably very volcanically active. So lots of volcanoes erupting. We know what the atmosphere was probably made up of. It's not like the atmosphere that we have today with oxygen and nitrogen. It was probably some nitrogen, probably a lot, probably some hydrogen still, and a lot of carbon compounds. So slight, different, different atmosphere than we have today. And that would be our understanding from the way the solar system formed, the way the planets formed, what materials would have been there. Over those four and a half billion years, the Earth's atmosphere has slowly changed. As it began to cool off, things like methane, ammonia, carbon dioxide, and water began to form. So these are the kind of things that would have made up the very early atmosphere and the very early composition of the Earth. What would have been here? So we're finding carbon dioxide. Uh, methane is one of the simplest carbon compounds. You can get just carbon and hydrogen. Ammonia is nitrogen and hydrogen. Water, oxygen and hydrogen. So lots of hydrogen tied up in between, in between these different types of molecules that would have been present in the very early Earth's atmosphere. Now, we said volcanoes. There would have been storms. We did have an atmosphere. You would have had clouds. You would have had lightning. Uh, the level of radioactivity would have been a lot higher, so a lot more radioactive decay. A lot more ultraviolet radiation streaming through. Um, right now our ozone layer shields out a lot of the ultraviolet radiation from reaching the surface of the Earth. At this point, very early on, there was no ozone layer. It had not yet developed. So ultraviolet radiation and more intense radiation was making it to the surface of the Earth. Meteor impacts were much stronger, much larger impacts, much many more impacts. Recall that the early cratering period for the moon was very early on. There were lots of craters. So we were not only getting hit by all the much more intense volcanic activity than we have right now. You know, constant volcanoes all over the Earth's surface, lightning storms, radioactivity, ultraviolet radiation, and a lot of impacts. So there was a lot of stuff going on early on. But over that billion years, we know that certain things were created. And that was amino acids, very basic, the basic building blocks that go into your DNA. Um, the DNA is the double helix. So what I've shown there that would stretch on and on for many miles at this scale, many miles in each direction. But the amino acids are the little building blocks that go, in, that go into that. Those are something that we can actually form in the laboratory. So a living creature is not something we can form in the laboratory, but we can actually do, we can actually create the amino acids, the building blocks of life. And this process, based on our understanding of the early Earth, what it was like, what the composition of everything was, we can use that to then recreate what might have happened early on in the history of the Earth. And that's the Uri Miller experiment that was done in the 1950s. And it took a combination of gases, the gases that we think would have been present in the early Earth's atmosphere. So not our current atmosphere, not oxygen and nitrogen. But the nitrogen, the carbon dioxide, the methanes, the ammonias, put all of that together, the stuff that we think would have been present in the very early Earth's atmosphere. We've got sparks here, simulate lightning. So simulate some of the energy that's coming through. Water being heated up. 
cycling through this and then being cooled out and condensed and then a little trap down here to collect. You know, as the water cycles goes through this water cycle, as it comes back in, you know, what do we find? And we start off with only those very simple very simple uh, carbon compounds, things like methane, carbon dioxide, also ammonia and water and all of that kind of stuff and we end up with amino acids. No, no life, no living, no living creatures, but we did have something like yeah. But we did have we're able to form um, the amino acids, the basic building blocks of life. So no, no little creature that comes out and says, hi, here I am, you know, the little, little amoeba coming out and, and greeting you. But certainly water that is trapped that contains these basic building blocks of life. So we found that based on what we understand of the early Earth's atmosphere and what the conditions are in the early Earth, Earth that things could have formed that they could have formed the amino acids. Now that's not life. That's not even close. But it's the basic building blocks and we also find these amino acids other places in the universe. So we're starting to find these basic building blocks not just here on Earth but also elsewhere in the universe. Uh, we find them out in terms of uh, very cold objects in terms of comets and asteroids we find, and meteors. We'll find some of these basic building blocks of life. So it looks like whether life exists elsewhere or not is still a very good question that we can't answer, but the basic building blocks are very easy to create. The big question is how you go from those basic building blocks to an actual living organism. So here's a couple examples. The next couple slides I'm going to go through just show some of these examples. These are some little droplets that are clusters of these amino acids. They look almost like little cells. They're not. They're just basically the outline of, this, of the best, just basically the outline, but beginning to form, you know, some of the ideas, some of the basic building blocks that we need for a living creature. Are we getting closer to a cell when we see these kind of, of droplets? The droplets can actually expand. They can split, but they're not actual living creatures. There's no DNA, no other uh, things that we associate with life on on these droplets. So these are things that can be created when you get billions upon billions of these amino acid molecules put together. They're not yet put together, together in the DNA section, uh, DNA structure, but they are beginning to group and they do tend to form these little almost bubbles that, that form. Now to compare what else we can see, here's two images. The right hand side is actually uh, living, is algae. So you can see some of the cells here and some of the structures of the algae. On the other side are, is a two billion year old fossil. So a two billion year old fossil that looks rather similar. Similar structures, similar structures there, circular structures, the more linear structures. All of it looks pretty much the same. And the drop, they look kind of like those droplets that began to form in the earlier picture. So they look a little bit like those droplets in the previous picture, but the algae today is you know, very closely related to this algae that we can find fossilized you know, from two billion, year, two billion years ago as to what it actually was, was like. All right, let's see. 
could they come from outside? I said, you know, we see these elsewhere in the universe. It's also possible that some of the complex molecules, some of the stuff that came from us, could, be, could have come from outside, from meteorites, from comets. And this is actually, again, showing more of those little circular droplets, lots of amino acids. But these, weren't formed on, these wouldn't have been formed on the surface of the Earth. This is taking a very cold mixture and submitting it to a lot of ultraviolet radiation. Well, if you've got a cold mixture of this, these compounds out in space in, say, a comet, they're going to be subjected to a lot of ultraviolet radiation because they're not shielded at all by our atmosphere. So all that ultraviolet radiation streams straight through and it forms more, again, forms amino acids from the much simpler compounds that started out. So again, things like methane and ammonia and water, when subjected to a lot of radiation, do turn into, are able to form into the amino acids. Again, still no living creatures here. Just the basic building blocks that we need to create one of these living, to create a living creature. How do we make that jump? That's, that's a very good, good question still. But we do see that some of this seems to come from, that there could be possibilities that, you know, could life on Earth have come from space? You know, could there have been amino acids coming from space? We've shown that they could have formed here on Earth or, they, or that they could form in space. Which one, which, which one is where, where things come from is a very good question. Could life on Earth have come from things like comets striking into the Earth very early on in its history? And here's an example of a meteorite. This was found in Australia. Um, it contains the same set of amino acids that we find here on Earth. Not exactly the same. There's some slight differences between them, but the basic amino acids are the same. So again, we're finding this in a meteorite that could have fallen to Earth. And I'm not sure whether this was fall, fell or seen to fall or was found. Doesn't specifically specify on it, but. You know, when it was found, but certainly, certainly formed many billions of years ago. The meteorites would have formed millions billions of years ago, and whether they've been on Earth for a while or not, certainly shows the amino acids, again, that they, form, they can form out there in space as well. So it's giving us some very good ideas that there's probably going to be some kind of life out there, whether it's complex life like us or simple life, you know, like the algae we saw. Again, another very good question that I can't tell you the answer to, but it's one of those things that you're going to be at once to, until we find it, it's going to be just it's going to be remain wide open. We're never going to be able to say there's no life in the universe. Right? You got to check every planet, every single possible place in the entire universe. Well, that's not physically possible. Easier to find life in the universe. Once you find it one place, then you can say yes, there is life out there. Otherwise, to prove it wrong, you got to search every single place that possibly exists. Alrighty. So, giving some of the time frame of this, those little simple creatures, the little algaes, we know that they were on Earth about three and a half billion years ago. So, nearly as soon as we can start getting records, remember that first billion years was all wiped out? So, we can't see anything about the first billion years just because the Earth was so active that everything was wiped out. But we, as soon as we can start getting records, we get things like algae. Took three, it took, took you know, a billion years or so to get from nothing to algaes. Very complex one-celled creatures like the amoeba, still single cells, just one-celled creatures. We start seeing records of them about two billion years ago. So it took a billion and a half years to go from an algae 
to an amoeba. Now there's a big difference in complexity, but we're still talking about a creature with one cell. So nothing close to you know, human structures. Multis, to go from multicell from that to a multicellular organism, cellular organisms, about another billion years. Get an idea that it's taking a long time for this to occur. It's not something that just happens where you know a creature forms and all of a sudden you've got you go from a basic algae to you know complex civilization in a hundred million years or even a billion years. It's taking billions of years to just take those little steps to go from a very simple algae to an amoeba, to a multicellular organism. And then for comparison, you know, our entire, you know, depending on what you want to count as human civilization, our entire civilization has been maybe 10,000 years. So 10,000 years, there's a lot of 10,000s in a billion. Very, very small, very, very small part of it. So part of what I want you to get out of here is just the time that it's taking. And this is going to help us when we're looking for, you know, we want to search for life elsewhere in the universe, where are we going to look? Well, there's some places we don't need to bother with. We looked at Andromeda Galaxy earlier today. Bright blue stars in the outside. I told you they lived a few million years. If they live a few million years, are we going to look for life there? Is a planet going to have time to form life if the Earth is typical? It's one thing we don't know either, is the Earth typical? But if that only lives 10 million years, are we going to be able to spend three and a half billion, a billion and a half, another billion? We're not going to be able to spend that time to form life. So you don't even need to look at certain stars because those stars don't live long enough. Of course, that could be just saying, you know, maybe we're just unusually slow. You know, we're the very, we're the very slow. Maybe this should, should happen in 100 million years, but Earth was real slow and it took them three billion years to get to a complex life. Again, problem is we can't tell because we only have one example where it's formed. If we could go out across the universe and find thousands of examples of different civilizations, well, how fast did this one evolve? How fast did this one? How fast did this one? Then you can actually get some good statistics. When you've only got one, all you can tell is what we've got. It doesn't tell whether we're really fast. Maybe this should have taken 20 billion years, or we're really slow. It should have taken 20 million years. We don't know, we don't know which of those would be the case. So let's start looking for life in the solar system. Um, let's start off, and now I've told you about life in general, but let's concentrate it down. Let's start with life as we know it. Try to make it a little bit easier. So that's carbon-based life that started with liquid water. So carb we, need, we need carbon, we need liquid water. Where are we going to find those things in the solar system? Our best bet, and the one we've explored the most looking for this, is Mars. We've certainly had several rovers on the surface of Mars searching. We had the Viking landers back in the 1970s that landed on the surface of Mars and searched for life. We've had nothing conclusive. There have been some things that were you know, tempting to say perhaps there was life there, but nothing, nothing that could be really conclusive in terms of it. If we want to look a little bit further out, perhaps Europa has that great ocean below its surface. So its crust is all ice, but down below that it's got an ocean of water with more water than we have on the entire Earth. So a lot of water there. Would that be a possibility? It's a much longer shot. Titan, uh, the moon of Saturn with a, great, with a thick atmosphere, those are much longer shots. Anything else, we can pretty much say there's no life anyplace else in the solar system. At least not life as we know it. So Mercury, we can rule that out. Venus, we can rule that out. 
the other Jovian planets, the other moons, there's just no way to have any of the stuff that we're looking for to have, have life. So we can rule out pretty much every place else in the solar system. So one for sure, Earth. Mars is our next best choice. And then Europa or Titan would be the next two beyond, beyond that that might have a chance to have anything. But what about the alternatives? What about you know silicon? I mentioned silicon last time. And silicon is right below carbon in the periodic table. So there's carbon. We're based on carbon. Could there be life based on silicon? Again, if you're taking chemistry, all the elements in the same column have similar properties. So silicon is the next closest element with properties that are similar to carbon in order to be able to form longer chains of molecules. Could the liquid be things like ammonia or methane? Do you have to have water? We have liquid methane on some of the planets, uh, some of the moons out there. We have liquid methane, liquid ammonia. Could those be things that would be the basis of life? Well, one of the problems is silicon is much less likely to form a complex molecule. It doesn't form these gigantic chains quite the way carbon does. Uh, it's not quite as stable for forming very, very large molecules. And the problem with liquid methane or liquid ammonia is that they're very cold. So chemical reactions that form the amino acids would go slower and slower because it's at a much lower temperature. So does that rule them out? Not really, but it does sort of say if we're going to look at things that are going to take a longer time, our time frames from what we knew on Earth were already very long. We're talking many billions of years. So would it be likely that something could have formed on this? Again, it's still a possibility. It's not something we can rule out. But we tend not to consider it as much because, just because it's so less likely to have, to have occurred, so much less likely to have formed the complex molecules, so much less likely to have had the time for the reactions to have been able to occur. All right. All right. The Drake equation. That's what we're going to be working on today. That's our lab I have for you is doing some calculations involving the Drake equation. And this is sort of it in a picture form. I'll show it to you in equation form in a minute. But essentially what it does is asks you a bunch of questions about things and gives you at the end how many civilizations there are in the universe. Boy, sounds great, right? To, how exact, to give you an exact number, how many civilizations are there in the universe? Well, you just put all these numbers in, press the button, press the equal sign on your calculator, and it tells you exactly how many. Problem is, we don't know the numbers that go into it. We don't know what numbers to give you. Give you some of them pretty accurately, but as it gets down further, it gets much, much harder. And what I'm going to do over the coming slides is we're kind of going to work our way through these steps. But in its essence, what it does is it takes all the stars in the Milky Way galaxy. I can get a pretty good estimate of that. How many of those have planets? I can probably tell you pretty closely, maybe not exactly, but I can give you a pretty good percentage uh, estimate of what percentage of stars in the, in the Milky Way have planets. How many of those are habitable? It gets a little harder, but we can probably estimate, you know, is there one or two per star system that might be in the habitable zone? Habitable zone meaning water is in liquid form. So how many are habitable? Then it starts getting really tough. How many of them for, that, have, that are habitable actually form life? It's really hard to answer that question. Is it really common? If you form those amino acids, we know they're easy to form. We can see them forming elsewhere. Do you form life? 
certainly a possibility, but does it happen 90% of the time or 10% of the time? Is it 99.99% of the time or is it one in a million? Those are the things we don't know. So there's a big range for the numbers that we can put in for things like how easy is it to form that simple life? How easy is it to form intelligent life? Well, if you form simple life, does it naturally evolve towards intelligence? Some things we think make, may make us think that it does, but it's nothing we know for sure. Could there be you know, planets out there that are populated by amoeba? And that's all they have. You know? Billions upon billions of amoeba on the, on the planet. They never evolved any further. It's certainly a possi as, as possible as going towards you know, intelligent life. So here's where we're starting to get into ones that we really don't know. Do we form a technical society? So you know, we consider ourselves a technological society. We're able to communicate. We can send radio signals out and we can receive radio signals. If you had a planet that where, tech, where life developed in the oceans and stayed in the oceans and the intelligent creatures were you know, dolphin-like creatures, are they going to develop radio telescopes? Now, maybe they'll evolve in some way that could eventually, but you know, thinking of that, if they're, if they're that type of creature, they're probably not going to be able to, to develop that kind, of, that kind of technology. So could there be a planet out there that is you know, a water world populated by dolphins? Well, we, maybe, but we still can't communicate with it. So for right now, since we can't travel out there, we have, that's the only thing we can do is look for ones that we can communicate. And that's what the last thing is in there. How long does a technological civilization last? How long does it, so once we form our technological civilization, we can communicate with radio waves, we can communicate with other stars. We've been able to do that for, what, 1920? So pushing a 90, 80, 90 years now, not quite 100 years. How long does the civilization last? Is it, is it gone, dead and gone typically in 20 years, 30 years, 100 years, 1,000 years, a million years? You know, that's the most unknown of anything because we don't even know how long our civilization lasts. Are we on the long end? Should we have only lasted 20 or 30 years? Or are we on the short end? Most civilizations last millions of years. But that's what I'm going to go over in the coming slides. We're going to go through each of these, each of these in turn. So this is just the same, same thing in, in equation form, and I'm going to give you this on your lab. So you'll actually have the same thing on your lab. But really, to find out how many technological, intelligent civilizations, how many civilizations can we communicate with? It's not telling us whether there's necessarily life on the planet, but is it life that we can communicate with? That we can send a radio signal there, they're capable of detecting it and sending a signal back. And all we have to do is take the stars that are forming in the, in the Milky Way, how many stars have formed, how many have planets, how many habitable planets are there in each of those systems, and what fraction does life arise, what fraction does intelligence involve, which ones develop a technical society, and how is, what's the average lifetime. So same thing I showed you on the last slide, same thing I'm going to give you on the lab, but just written out this way in, equa in, equation, in equation form. And that's what you're going to be doing in the lab, is I'm going to give you some numbers, and you just plug them in and multiply them all together and, and see what kind of ranges of civilizations can you get. So again, here we're going to start. First of all, we look at star formation. About 10 stars per year form in the Milky Way. That just takes the total number of stars, divides it by its age. We formed about 10 stars per year over the history of our Milky Way. So that we know pretty well. That, that number we're pretty confident in. 
Could it be 9? Could it be 11? Yeah, but it's probably pretty close. So it's not way off. It's not like it could be 10 or it could be 1,000 or it could be 1 1,000th. We have a pretty good handle on that number. Now, fraction of stars having planetary systems. Well, we're getting an even better handle on it than the slide sort of tells you. We have begun to detect planetary systems that are actually like our own. We've actually detected planets that are the size of Earth, the size of Earth and some of them that are actually in the habitable zones. So, we're starting to detect a lot. We're starting to detect a lot more of them. Uh, as of right now, I think we're pushing about 900 or so planets that have been detected. You know, including those in our solar system, there's about, about, nine, about 900 that have been detected. They're difficult. Things have to be set up just right in order to detect that planet. So since they're difficult to find and we're finding hundreds and hundreds of them, it's probably telling us there's many thousands, many millions, maybe even billions of planets in our galaxy. We just can't detect them all yet. We don't have the technology. It's sort of like detecting any new object. When we first started detecting asteroids uh, back in the very early part of the 19th century, early 1800s, uh, we detected a few. Detected a few of the biggest ones, the easiest ones to detect, but we're still finding them today. And we're still finding more and more today as time goes on. So it's likely then that we probably have lots of stars with planetary systems. And we are beginning to detect those a little bit more. Now, the number of habitable planets. Here's where we've got to start narrowing things down. If you remember, we had all the, we had the spectral classes. Remember way back, right? We had O's, B, A, F, G's, K's, and M's, all the different spectral classes of the stars. But what we pretty much rule out is these ones. These don't live long enough. So if they only live 10 million years, 50 million years, 100 million years, a billion years, that's not going to be long enough from our understanding at least from what we know of on Earth to form a technological civilization. We also tend to rule out the M stars because the habitable zone is too small. That's what's kind of pictured here is the range around that star where liquid water could exist. This would be the habitable zone for life like ours. So there's the star. There's a star a little bit hotter than the sun. Got a nice big habitable zone. Any planet in there would be at about the right temperature to have water. If it was a planet of the right size and right composition, you'd be able to have liquid water on its surface. So that's the range where we'd look. A star like the sun or somewhere like this with Venus just on the inner edge, Earth in here, and Mars just outside of it. An M-type star would be like this. A little tiny red star and a little tiny narrow range. So does it rule it out completely? No. But you have to have a planet exactly in that range. If you have it too far out, it's going to be too cold. If you have it too, even closer, it's going to be too hot. So you have a much narrower range where stars can form. So if we're going to look at the best possibilities, we certainly look at these stars that are around the sun, some a little bit hotter and some a little bit cooler than the sun. They give us a big enough habitable zone and a long enough lifetime to actually have formed a civilization. 
Now we have a galactic habitable zone too. Some areas in the galaxy you don't want to live. Okay, so here's our galaxy. There's the bar at the center. Spiral arm stretching out and stretching way out beyond here. So here's our sun. Good chunk of the way out. If you're going to be in that, you have a habitable zone within the galaxy. Not because of temperatures, like you do around the sun. You don't need, not going to be in certain parts to have liquid water. But if you're very close into the center of the galaxy, radiation gets much more intense. Remember there's still a black hole that is accreting matter and sending radiation out. So the radiation intensity would be very high here. And the density of the stars would be a lot more. So stars would be a lot closer together. So it would be difficult to have a, living, a planet with living creatures in there. Further out, way out at the edges of the galaxy, there probably aren't, we don't t- tend to think to look, because there wouldn't be any heavy elements. Heavy elements to an astronomer is anything beyond helium. So if you don't have things like carbon and nitrogen and oxygen, how are you going to form life? Right? That's the building blocks that we need to form life. And you're not going to have any of those if you're in the heavy elements out here. Just because there haven't been enough stars, the only way to get those elements is through supernova explosions. So they happen a lot here in, this, in the detail of the spiral arms. There aren't as many stars out here, so there hasn't been as much time to give them heavier elements. So we tend to look with specific regions within the galaxy as well as with specific regions around a star. Finally, we, we rule out in some cases binary systems and in many cases because you, it's very difficult to form a stable orbit around a binary star with a planet. You have a couple cases. You can either have the case where the, star is very, the planet is very close to one of the stars. You could have a case where a planet makes very big orbit around both stars. Those can both be stable. But it's likely going to be very hot here because you have to be very close to that star in order to keep it far enough away from the other star. Here you've got to get a big orbit around both stars, so it might, have, might end up being too cold. It's harder to find good stable orbits. The bottom one is a nice little figure eight orbit. Wouldn't that be a cool planet to live on? Right? You know, you're right here, and you've got sunlight, and you've got sunlight. But can you imagine what the temperature differences would be like? Right here you've got sunlight all day long. Right? Because as one sun rises, the other sun sets. Wouldn't it be? Yeah, but you get over here, and now it's going to be cold because now you're far away from both stars. So it's going to go from very, very hot with two stars very close to you to very cold when you're way out here. So not likely conditions for life. Again, we're using our own biases in it. So maybe those are very good conditions for life and we just don't know it yet. But what we're going to estimate is about one habitable planet in every 10 star systems. So. Out of every 10 star systems we detect, maybe there'll be one habitable, pl- habitable planet in 10 of them. Still a pretty good percentage. You know, one in 10 isn't too, isn't too bad. Now that's the end of the numbers we know pretty well. Right? That's, the end, that's the end of what we really have a good idea on. When does life, how often does life actually arise? Well, we talked about the Miller-Urey experiment. Uri Miller exper- uh, Miller-Urey experiment that said we can form the amino acids very easily. We find them in space, but we can't jump to life. You know, they couldn't form that and then have some little living creature crawl out of it. 
So they could not make that jump to having a living creature. Does that just take, you know, you have to do this, run this experiment for a million years or a billion years in order to get that? That might be the case. So it might be very likely that, you know, once you have a habitable planet, it's automatically going to form life. Or it might be extremely rare. So you could say one, one meaning, yeah, every single planet that forms this is going to form life. Or you could be very pessimistic and say, maybe it's one in a million. Maybe it's one in a billion. No. They're all perfectly reasonable estimates because we don't know for sure. There's no great estimate. We're going to err on the side of optimism right now. So we're going to say, yeah, once we get a habitable planet, it's going to form life. So we're going to be really optimistic for this, this calculation that I'm going through here. So let's say, yes, if we, form, if we have a habitable planet, it is going to actually form life. Again, how often does intelligence arise? Good question. We, we only know of one case, right? If you want to debate whether we have intelligent life on Earth, well, maybe you could say there's none. But you know, we have one planet, right, where there's intelligent life that we know of. We don't have anything else to base it on. We can't go look at, again, we can't go look at thousands of planets. Well, let's see, here's thousands of habitable planets. Uh, these, this, these 500 formed intelligent, these 500 formed life. These 250 formed intelligent life. We don't have that. We only have one example. We don't know if we are typical, the norm, what would happen you know, every single time. Or if we're that you know, one in a billion times one in a billion times one in a billion that makes us the only case in the universe. Because you put all these numbers very small, you can end up with you know, being only one, one uh, form of life in the universe. But as I said, we're going to be really optimistic here and we're going to say, well, let's just be very optimistic and see what we get. So let's just say one. Meaning that every single, every single intelligent, every single planet that, be, that becomes life-bearing, becomes in, that life evolves towards intelligence. Now, the next one, next to last one. A fraction of planets where intelligent life develops and uses technology. Well, we still don't have any facts. It seems natural to us that life is going to move towards intelligence and is going to move towards technology. But is it necessarily the case? Again, we only have one example. We're looking at our own biases. Well, this is how we did it. Isn't this how everybody's going to do it? Maybe some other civilization is not going to develop technology. Uh, you know, develop different kinds, different kinds of creatures. I mean, it's quite possible that it would not. So, again, I'm giving you all these with, with, no, good number, with no good numbers to them. This is why if the equation is so nice that it tells you exactly how many civilizations there are. But, unfortunately, we don't know the numbers to put into it. We don't know them well enough. This could be one, which is what we're going to give it. We're going to say, let's say one, say all of, them, all of them become intelligent. It could be one in a billion. If you start multiplying one in a billion times one in a billion times one in a billion, you're very quickly eliminating out to, you know, you're going well out to the edges of the universe to find that other intelligent civilization that might be there. And these ones are actually pretty well known compared to the last one. So we do pretty good on, we have, we have no, no idea on these, but we have even less of an idea on the last, on the last one. The last one, oops, there it is. Oh, nope, they got to come to this first. Sorry, then I'll do the last one. So we, put, we gave you the first factors. We said about 10 stars per year forming. We said about 1 in 10 stars had planetary, had, uh, would have a habitable planet. So if we multiply everything out here, why we took all those estimates, we get 1. That's not us. We're not done yet. There's still one more factor. 
So that means that how many technological civilizations there are in the Milky Way right now is exactly equal to the average lifetime. How long does a technological <coughs> civilization survive? Here we don't have any we don't have anything to go on. We don't even have statistics of one to use. Because we don't know how long we'll survive. You know, are we here for you know a hundred years, a thousand years, a million years, a billion years? I can't tell I can't tell you. Um, typically what you think about is that radio radio communications developed primarily in the 1920s and then into the 1930s. And shortly after that, you know, was you know, nuclear power and nuclear weapons were discovered. So do most civilizations destroy themselves? Do they typically last, you know, 20 or 30 years and then they destroy themselves? Or do they typically last many millions of years? We don't know. So if they typically last 20 years, then that would mean based on all our estimates, you'd have 20 technological civilizations right now in the, in the, in the galaxy. They last a million years, then you'd have a million technological civilizations in the galaxy. But we have no clue on those numbers. And again, we estimated these. We were very optimistic on these. If these were one in a billion, one in a billion, one in a billion, then all of a sudden that number drops really, really drastically. So, so what I gave you here. Average lifetime of a technological civilization, we don't have a single example. We don't know how long any technological civilization has lasted. We know that we've been able to communicate for the last 80 to 90 years. But that's not a li our lifetime, right? And not unless we're gone today, that's not our lifetime. We don't know. Is it going to be another 100 years? Another 1,000 years? Another million years? We don't know how long we will remain as a technological civilization. And as I mentioned, we, we, we were really optimistic. Maybe we're right. Maybe we're optimistically right, saying that life always evolves and it always evolves towards intelligence and it always evolves towards uh, technology. But we don't know that for sure. So if any of those are low or all of them are low, if they're all one in a hundred, boy, those number of civilizations drops really, drops like a stone. There's like not, there'd be nothing within our galaxy, making it even harder to communicate. Now, of course, there's still many galaxies out there. We're only looking just at our galaxy in this case. There's many more galaxies to look at. But as those numbers get harder and harder, and the idea of being able to communicate gets, hard, gets harder and harder as well. So let's, still, let's continue optimistic. Let's say that the average lifetime is a million years. So that our civilization will be communicative for another almost million years. That means there should be a million civilizations in the galaxy. That's a lot, right? It's a lot of civilizations in our galaxy. They'll be about 100 light years apart on the average, right? You can't tell. Could be one next door, could be one 200 light years away. You can't tell, but on average, if you're going to spread them uniformly around the galaxy, they'll be about 100 light years apart. That means if we want to communicate with them, we can send them a signal. We can send a signal to the star 100 light years away. 100 years from now, they'll get it. So, 2113, they get the signal. They decode it, figure it out immediately, decide to send us back a signal right away. We get an answer in 2213, so 200 years later. Communication is not going to be easy. Even if there would happen to be a civilization around Alpha Centauri, the nearest star, it takes a little over four years to get there. It takes a little over four years to get back. So eight years to communicate. So we say hi, they say hi, eight years have passed. 
That's just because of the time. We can't travel, and signals cannot travel faster than light. The best of what we know right now. So there's no way to communicate any faster than that. So even that, you know, communication is not going to be, it's not something where we're going to be able to talk to another civilization easily like this. That's, that's cool. And this is being the super optimistic as we can about be, right? You can't put those other ones higher than one. And I guess you could go higher than a million years. You could say maybe it's a billion years and spread them out, bring them a little bit closer, bring them a thousand times, you know, a thousand times, say there's you know, civilizations within a few light years. You're still talking many years to be able to communicate with these. With these. So what are we sending out there? Well, this is a plaque that was sent out on Pioneer 10. So it's actually attached to the spacecraft that went out to explore uh, Jupiter and flew by Jupiter. So it actually left Earth, flew by Jupiter, used its gravity, and was flung out of the solar system. And it sends a lot of information out there about, certainly here's, here's our solar system. Um, old enough, this was, this was done in the 70s. Actually, Pluto was included. Um, and what else? The spacecraft here, humans to scale for that to the size. And all of the other information here, here the little googly eyes up there, right? Look like some little googly eyes they're trying to send out. Those are actually, that's actually meant to be a hydrogen molecule. And hydrogen showing this, this flip, that spin, uh, where the spin of the electron flips from matching with the proton to not matching. And if you recall, we talked about that before, but that releases energy at 21 centimeters, which is what we use to study the universe. So it's a very common thing. It's something we think any technological civilization would know. The other thing we sent out was this little starburst here. This is actually showing the location from where we are, the locations of a bunch of pulsars. So pulsars would be able to be detected by another technological civilization. And the coding of them was the lengths were the distances. And encoded within here in binary was actually the periods of the pulsar, how fast they're rotating. So again, something that somebody else would be, a, another intelligent civilization might be able to decode. So sending out that information about us. There's a binary code with it. The length has to do with the, the distance, and then the binary code has to do with their, it's not magnified, but there'd be like ones and zeros, you know, dots and dash type things to, to encode it in to say what the, what the period was. So that someone else could detect and say, you know, they could actually locate us from this. Now the thing is that this is heading out into space and it will take it millions of years to get near the, close to the next nearest star. So it's to the edge of our solar system. It's actually beyond, you know, beyond all the planet, well beyond all the planets now. And heading out like 80, 90 astronomical units from the sun. Incredibly far away, you know, three times the distance of, of Neptune. But that's nowhere near the nearest star. So it is heading out there. It's heading out there very fast, but not something that's going to get out to another star anytime in the near future. But that's just some of the information that was sent out. And in fact, the Voyager spacecraft sent another one out with a, a record that could be played. So sort of a golden record that could actually be played that included information and recordings and greetings uh, on it as well. So a little bit more information that was sent out on that one. Now, that was deliberate communication. We also have you know, unintentional communication. Uh, radio waves that we broadcast, the Earth is actually kind of a little pulsar. Right? It pulses as it spins around, as radio stations rise and set. When they become visible, especially, you'll note, um, North America, the east coast of North America. You can see where it sets. 
you can see here's the North American East Coast rising. You're getting a lot of uh, intensity. Radio intensity picks up as the where all the radio stations and the broadcast, where the primary radio stations and the primary TV stations are all broadcasting, those radio waves being emitted, and they'd have a pattern of about 24 hours. So as they're coming in, as they're rising or setting, they'll either come out or they'll be they'll be strong right at those times, right at those times of rising and setting. So sort of like a little pulsar. So the Earth will be pulsing out this information. Now that doesn't mean like they do in the science fiction, that doesn't mean they can pick up our signals and watch our TV shows and listen to our radio shows. That's essentially the carrier waves that are being strong enough to be detected at any kind of distance. So they can't sit there and go watch, you know, if they're 50 light years away, they're not watching our TV shows from, what would it be, the early 1960s? You know, they're not, they can't watch the TV shows. That information would be way too hard to detect, way too, too weak. But you would be able to detect carrier signals that there's something there, that there's some kind of intelligent life because of the way the ra- this planet is emitting radio waves and the pattern at which, radi- which it's emitting them. So we can detect that. We could detect that and we could try to detect that from another planet, not something we've had any success with so far. Now, where are we going to look? If we want to broadcast a signal to someone else, someone out there, where are we going to pick out? We've got the entire radio spectrum. You have wavelengths that are millimeters long. You have wavelengths that are meters long. You have wavelengths that are multiple meters long. Where are you going to pick? Because like a radio station, if I want to send a signal and I want someone to, re- to pick it up, we've got to be tuned to the same frequency. Right? You know, someone can send you a message, broadcast a message on a radio station, but if you're not, if you're tuned to another radio station at the time, you're never going to hear the message. Right? So if we're sending the signal out at 10 gigahertz and they're listening at 8 gigahertz, you know, it just goes right by each other. We never, we never hear it. We never detect it. So you have to pick out what frequency is going to be good. And the one area that's thought to be, that makes sense to us, whether another civilization thinks the same is a good question, but is a feature in the spectrum called the water hole. And what this graph is showing is, first of all, here's the Earth's atmosphere, where the atmosphere emits, blocks out a lot of radio radiation. This is the cosmic microwave background. It gets strong in certain areas. This is the galaxy, the strength of the galaxy. And if you add all of those up, add up the the Earth's atmosphere, add up the black body radiation, add up the galactic background, you get this blue curve. The the higher it goes up, the more noise you get. So if you're trying to communicate way up here, there's a lot of noise there. You're trying to filter through a very noisy radio station, one that's not just coming in quite well. If you look at this, this section, this area right in here is where all the noises sort of minimize, where they're about the lowest. The water hole that we tend to look at and where we search for signals is between emissions of hydrogen and emissions of the hydroxyl OH molecule. If you put H and OH together, you get water, H2O. So that's why it's called the water hole, right in between those two lines. So we say that this might be a very good section to look for. So if we're tuned to the same frequency, then maybe we'll get to hear someone, or maybe we'll be able to broadcast a signal. Also depends on who's broadcasting and who's listening. If everybody's broadcasting and sending signals out at the waterhole, but nobody's listening, you're never going to hear anything. If everybody's sitting there listening, oh, somebody's got to be sending out a signal to us, but nobody is, 
then you're never going to hear anything either. So part of our searches involve sending out signals and listening for signals. So here's an example. Uh, this is the Green Bank Telescope, this is that 100 meter telescope. Uh, so about a football field in size there that was used to search for extraterrestrial signals. <coughs> Here's kind of what it's looking for when it searches. You're looking for, you're going to see a whole bunch, just a snowy pattern. If you actually ever get a signal, you'd get a sort of a streak, a line going through it, some sort of coherent pattern. So that's what it would look like if we ever found one. Nothing as yet has been, has been found. But there's actually, they're recording tremendous amounts of data. There is actually, and I should have looked it up again today, there's actually one where you can go on and you can actually use your computer in the background to help decode signals and look for stuff. Where you can actually go on to one of the sites where amateurs are doing this and that you can use computers to use your computer run in the background to you know, download their data and, and help, anal help analyze it. So one of the interesting little things. Little things there. But as of yet, we found nothing. Does that mean it's not out there? No. I mean, my, my personal opinion is it probably is out there someplace. Whether it's intelligent, you know, even that makes sense to me just because it seems reasonable. Again, we look at our own bias that you know, we evolved towards intelligence, we evolved towards this kind of technology, wouldn't every civilization? Maybe we're not. Maybe we're the oddballs. But certainly seems likely that there would be something, something out there. The problem is trying to be able to detect it, and then if we ever do, trying to be able to communicate over the tremendous distances. All right, well, let's finish up here. Summary. We talked about the different ranges, the different history of the universe divided into different phases. Uh, evolution of particles, galaxies, forming stars, forming planets, uh, developing the basic building blocks, the chemical evolution to be forming those building blocks of life, biological evolution, so actually getting that jump to a single-celled organism, and then that single-celled organism becoming more complex. And then as it becomes more complex, developing a culture. And that's what we're calling cosmic evolution. <coughs> we defined a living organism. This was our very general um, definition we gave yesterday. Has to be able to react to its environment, grow by taking in nutrients, reproduce, and evolve. So no references to oxygen, no references to water, although we did kind of narrow that down later on to try to say that to use that as a basis to do some of our numbers. Amino acids could have formed in the, in the conditions present on the early Earth. So what we see, we know what the Earth was like early on. And we can re-simulate those conditions and we can form amino acids. No living organisms, but we can simulate the very basics of it. And that also occurs in space. We can see evidence for this having happened in space as well. Where might we find life in the solar system? Well, we've got life on Earth. We know that. Maybe on Mars. Longer shots, maybe. Europa and Titan as possibilities. That's about it for our solar system. You know, there's life as we know it, at least, there's no use looking on Mercury. There's no use looking on Venus. There's no use looking on any of the Jovian planets for life as we know it. Uh, it would have to be some completely different type of life. Then the Drake equation, which we started on, and we're going to do that a little bit more for the, for the lab today. It can tell us, love the equation, tells us exactly how many intelligent civilizations there are in the universe. All you got to know is these six, seven numbers, plug them all in, multiply them together, and you're done. Problem is, we don't know the numbers. We don't know. Some of the factors are uncertain into the fact that they might be one, they might be one in a billion, they might be one in a trillion. Well, there's a big difference between those. They're not just, well, maybe it's one or two. 
we can get a pretty good estimate if it was just ones and twos and threes and we were that close. But when it's that big of a difference, it, can, it makes a big difference as to whether even optimistically, you know, we're talking hundreds of light years away. If we go pessimistically, we're talking, you know, billions of light years away. We're talking about things that have to be, you know, in very distant galaxies. Finally, we've sent uh, space probes. We now have several space probes that are traveling out <coughs> through the universe. Pioneer 10, Pioneer 11. I showed you the Pioneer 10 plaque. Pioneer 11 as well. And the two Voyager probes are out you know, beyond the edge of the solar system, reaching you know, 100 astronomical units away from the sun. Credible distances for us, but very small compared to interstellar space. They're on their way out there. And in fact, Voyager, Voyager 1, I believe, has now reached the edge, has actually crossed the boundary. They've got, still been able to get signals from it that it's crossed the boundary. And it's, uh, it's released. It's, it's past the boundary where the sun's magnetic field has, has influence. So it's starting to get lots of particles from interstellar space, being the first spacecraft that we've, know, that we've launched to be able to reach that distance. So we've sent out information. Problem is, those things are traveling slowly, incredibly fast for us, but they're traveling so slowly that it'll still take them, you know, even many, you know, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of years to reach the nearest star. Radio signals, we have leakage of radio signals. We send some out uh, intentionally. We send signals out intentionally. We send them out unintentionally. Uh, the ones that we send out unintentionally would have a variation, a periodic variation because they'd just be the ones we're broadcasting signals all day and as, the, as it rises we get that boost in the signal and we get a little bit and it could be detected elsewhere. So you'd be able to see it kind of as like a mini pulsar, nowhere near as strong as an actual one. And then finally the water hole. That's what we think is a good place to broadcast and to listen for messages. But you've got to do both. We have to broadcast, which we've done, and we have to seek messages. We have to listen for messages. Because if everybody's only doing one, if everybody decides to do the same thing, then everybody's either listening or everybody's either broadcasting and nobody's going to actually be able to communicate with each other. But whether there are civilizations out there, again, is a very good question. And we won't know until we find The answer will never be answered until we find one. It'll always be we don't know. It'll never be no. The answer will never be no, there is no intelligent life out there. Because you can't search the entire universe. So the answer will always be we don't know or it'll be yes and we'll find something. So questions? Questions? <laughs>